questions are really about humans and humanity, and some of them are more about how do we live, how do we coexist. And I would say the ones about humans and humanity are really, in my mind, who are we becoming as humans uh, in the age of self-transformation. The first time we can play God, we can modify who we are, we can create potentially a new species. So thanks to AI and gene editing, um, we can modify who our children will be biologically. And we can create augmentation or competition to ourselves with artificial intelligence. And that allows extraordinary possibilities, but also a real question, how far do we go? Are we creating a new species? What will the species be? What do we want the species to be? How do we want it to treat us or be part of us? These are all the questions that um, I'm intrigued by, because in essence, we are the creators. We are God. And if you're God, um, what do you want uh, your children to be? And that's really uh, the question. And um, that's the one that's, I think, the hardest and the longest term, but the most significant in terms of changing the nature of humanity, changing the nature of humans, will also have an enormous influence on the rest of the species around us. And um, we have already, but this will provide, you know, the most powerful tools ever. So, again, our influence on ourselves and on others is going to be multiplied. I think that's exciting. But this is the biggest question. That's the human question. The other question is really one of coexistence. Um, and not with the, what we are creating, but just today. And the questions I have there is, our democracies, I feel, are fraying in terms of the system. And we have to rethink them. So it's not a question of short-term political battles, I think. It has to do with rethinking how does the system, does democracy have to be restructured in essence. Same with capitalism. Capitalism has conquered the world. Um, but we are getting to a point where capitalism may benefit most, but in a way, in a way that's very uneven. So we have to rethink that. And lastly, in a world that, in theory, wants to cooperate, we can see that different nations, different people, different cultures are really at odds with each other. They always were. But now I think they are. What happened after World War II, where the world came together, uh, where institutions like the UN, and then more updated ideas like the G20 was trying to, to bring people together. 
I think today uh, the world is breaking up and you have key nations really each for themselves. The US, Europe doesn't really exist as a, as a cohesive group, but there too for itself. India for itself, Russia for itself, China for itself, Turkey for itself. So it's becoming a harder world to manage. So these are my questions um, beyond my own very personal life. These are the questions that I would have, at least the intellectual questions. Well, if the question is, you know, the technological tools like gene editing or quite separate but in a way related, um, you know, artificial intelligence, these tools are going to allow us to truly modify ourselves and the nature of who we are as humans. And I think that they're going to be irresistible. So every, every corner of humanity somehow will invest in it, adopt it, use it, but in different ways. And because they're going to be so transformative, we're going to have to think, who do we want to be? Who do we want, in essence, these, these children of ourselves to be? Beyond what used to happen in nature, which is we would reproduce, create life, and then use this life, these children, or educate them, see them as our future, but in a natural way. Even though we think it, we've always think it, we've think it through culture, through you know, the relationship between parents and children is the most important relationship. In this case, it gets more complicated because beyond the children being our natural children, we can influence them even beyond. We can influence them biologically, and we can, we can use artificial intelligence really as a new tool that even though, in theory, and I'm not a scientist or technologist whatsoever, uh, in theory, the tools of artificial intelligence are algorithm or computer, let's say, based. In reality, even an algorithm, I would argue, is biological. It comes from somewhere. It doesn't, it doesn't come from itself. And if it's related to us as a creator or as the one who's, let's say, enabling the algorithms, well, we're the parents. So who are those children? that we are creating, and what do we want them to be like as part of the Earth compared to us as a species, and frankly, compared to us as parents. Mm -hmm. They are our children, we are the parents. And will they, how will they treat us as parents? How do we treat our own parents? How do we treat our children, um, 
I think we have to think of these in the exact same way. And um, in separating technology in humans, the way we often think about these issues, I actually think is is almost wrong in the sense that technology and humans, if it comes from us, it's really the same thing. So we have a responsibility, we have the, we have the power and the imagination of shaping um, this future generation. And I think it's exciting. Let's just make sure that they view us as our parents. I mean their parents, sorry. If they view us as their parents, they're going to have a connection. We will have a connection. And a very Asian concept, which I'm sure is foreign to most of the people who engage with these things, uh, the Asian concept is one of uh, filial piety. Um, the idea that children have a responsibility towards their elders. Uh, and They have a duty, in essence, to their elders. That's almost the opposite in the West. New generations are supposed to kill the old ones. New ideas, the old ones, that's fine. But in this case, it could be dramatic. If AI, superintelligence, gets there, and I think it might, probably will, uh, if gene editing really is um, used uh, to its full extent, um, the new generations can easily dispose of us. And if we're interested in surviving as a species, uh, we need to create a bond. Theoretically, we're digital, but we're definitely analog <laughs> in the sense that uh, we, we are physical. Uh, if you take away the physical side of us, I don't think you would exist or want to exist at least today uh, because these delicious chocolates we just had um, we wouldn't be tempted by them we wouldn't enjoy them we wouldn't be uh, given pleasure or hurt by them uh, I think who we are no matter if we can reduce us or anything as algorithms, what do these algorithms become? And I think they only become something, at least the way we've experienced, and I think the way we will continue to experience, if they become physical. Uh, and what I mean by physical is everything that has to do with the world of emotions and feelings. Uh, the sort of soft world, not just the world of the mechanics. And I think that makes us humans, that makes animals, animals as well, that makes any living organism um, you know, participate and react to its environment. And The analog world 
physicality world that connects us still, the digital world, is really at the end a tool. But I think our reactions are still animal. And I think that, again, living entirely in the digital world. Number one may be an illusion. Number two, we would have to recreate the analog world for it to be significant even in the digital world. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the day, they'll be one and the same. And I think that sort of saying, the world is all digital, or the world is all analog, I think is probably a false question or a false, false way to try to define things, because at the end, they have to be the same. And this may be very naive, and I'm not a technologist, and therefore I'm probably wrong, and technologists will me wrong over time sure. well that's my instinct yeah. uh, yeah. and my instinct says that there is let's call it I don't know I'm not a technologist so I, I can't describe it but there is sort of uh, let's call it soft stuff that yeah. doesn't that's going to be very hard to um, to map and to I mean, the question is, is the universe entirely logical or is there randomness in our universe? Where, where do we come from? Where did the universe come from? The very start, nobody seems to know. But once it got going, is it, I know that mathematicians are able to better and better chart where we're going. So that there's a lot of power to the world of algorithm. But is, is it entirely predictable or is there randomness? And if there's randomness somewhere, um, then it tells me that even with algorithms, um, there's an element of maybe chance, or an, an element that even if you need algorithm to create the chance to create the optionality um, even though you may know the direction of things um, there's going to be some unpredictability that that is just part of the system if that happens to be the case then this may be a bad way of saying it, then the value of the analog world, the, 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 the not perfect, the not precise, uh, ultimately precise, will always be there. Because if everything was perfectly digital, perfectly explainable, then there's no reason for the universe or the world to exist, because why would there be um, change, changes about the fact that something is by definition imperfect, because why change something that's perfect? So change is about modifying something, and if you can explain it entirely through an algorithm, um, 
then there wouldn't be the need for change. This sounds, this sounds maybe very naive. Um, the fact that there is change means that one or two things, or we started with something imperfect, or the algorithm is all about change. And if it is all about change, fine, that's accepted. And um, maybe it's a perfect algorithm, and change is the nature of the algorithm. But then we can, it's like the genie is out of the bottle. You can never reconquer it, you can never master it. So that means there is an, an element of unpredictability or an element that is beyond mastering the algorithm. You'll never catch it in some ways. I talk to lots of people and I read a fair amount. Um, but at the end of the day, it all goes back to the questions. And because the questions are so difficult and profound, unless I'm able to answer the questions myself to me in a way that's credible, I can't really take anybody else's word. I mean, not that I'm great, but I'm just saying the the I haven't. I haven't been able to get, at least for me, very conclusive answers from people who are on one side or the other, meaning the people who really believe, well, the world is all analog or the world is all digital, take it. So I, what I think, at least listening to people who are actually part of, in the case of artificial intelligence, you know, part of potentially creating you know, super intelligence, or who at least are close to it. Um, so, you mentioned Larry Page or Elon Musk and others. They are the ones who are at the forefront of it. What's interesting is that all of them think that within, generally, our lifetime, it'll happen. So, they agree on one thing, it will happen. And um, what they don't agree on is, is it good, is it bad? Uh, can we live with it? And um, I think that's very, very fuzzy today. Uh, some think, well, this is going to be with destiny. It's going to be great for humanity somehow, but they don't really know what it means. And others say the opposite. They say, well, listen, superintelligence will basically be the end of, you know, our species being, let's call it the dominant species uh, on us. Um, so you have really two different views. I think that my own feeling is they're both right in some ways because superintelligence means something beyond our grasp, our strengths, but where I'm not so sure that they're right, they look at it really as potentially an outside species or separate agent. And I think that there will be, and there are already lots of separate agents, these are robots, but with limited capacity. So an agent that is 
a new species that has capacity that's quite extraordinary. Not necessarily all human in terms of um, qualities, but with enormous powers and the powers to evolve and self-transform. I think that may happen, but if we create it, does it have to be separate from us? And my challenge would be, it should be part of us, as opposed to separate from us. And that's going to be our challenge. If we're going to want to survive as a species, if we're going to want to uh, live well with what we invent here or create here, we've got to make sure that it works with us, within us, as opposed to outside of us. If it's outside of us, I think we might be in trouble. We'll lose control of it. Uh, we, it may become superior in some areas where we're in danger and other species uh, will be in danger as well. Uh, so if we make sure that it is part of us, it is our child, then I think um, we have a better chance. And I think that would be instinctively the way I would uh, try to go. The tools are technological, the tools um, have to be invested in, but let's look at them as biological, not just algorithmic. And if we look at them as sort of part of us, part of our biology because we're creating them, then it becomes more interesting and potentially more friendly. You know, this sort of child of humanity is really just that. It's the child of humanity. So it's it's all of our child. So it needs to be it needs to be for everyone if we're going to think of us as brothers and sisters. There's maybe a very idealistic notion of humans as being one. And then there are people who say, well, listen, why? You know, they're going to be winners and losers. I care about me, my family. Do I care about others? Um, I care about my people. Um, so I think that there's always going to be that. But I think that anyone who's truly thoughtful about the long-term consequences about the species itself um, is going to say, well, this technology or this child of humanity with extraordinary powers, with extraordinary capacity, is really sort of the future of our species. So it's not just about me or about my sister or my neighbor or my enemy. It's about all of us. So somehow, because it is about all of us, it's something that we have to think about um, you know, as something that will affect everyone, affect everyone that's part of the species. A little bit like a god would think about, well, what am I creating? And if you do that, well, you have to expose everyone, and you have to include everyone, and 
that's I think as a creator was part of the creation of it. But if you take the other side, if you think of society, society should be concerned about these things, think about these things, and engage. And what's interesting is that in the West, clearly, especially in the US today, we do have civil society, let's say, uh, private sector actors, who are really at the forefront of this. And government is really very far behind. Like, in general, government is always beyond civil society and technology. But I think the gap is becoming bigger. And um, ultimately, these technologies are so powerful. If you're creating a new species, it affects everyone. So you have to, you have no choice but to have government involved. Now it has to be intelligent government, it has to be a government for everyone, it shouldn't be partisan, that's going to be the issue of the West. Uh, the East, let's say China, has understood this, I think, reasonably well. So I think the government there will, at some point, take a position that they should be at the forefront of this. If you look at a country like France, which historically has had a lot of state involvement. The state is very powerful in France. Uh, they've also thought about this idea, well, they should be involved. Canada, which is, you know, somewhat influenced by uh, sort of French thinking, uh, at least was Trudeau, uh, is also thinking about getting involved. So one of the difficulties is that you have different speeds in different countries and different speeds in different cultures. Um, but ultimately, it'll affect all of us. I think uh, to make this uh, productive for the world, we will need uh, some cooperation. In the cyberspace, you didn't have it. In the cyberspace, everybody developed their own tools, and you can see it's quite messy today. Uh, and these tools are very powerful. These tools, AI, gene editing, are going to be even more powerful. Um, and if we don't find a way to cooperate, I think we'll have trouble because we're going to have competition between individual <coughs> agents. There can be companies or people, and there can be nations, uh, one against the other, and you have a race. And you need somehow to uh, come up with standards for people to cooperate or to put, in essence, a lid or a standard uh, on whoever gets there first. Um, and that, I think, hasn't been thought through or defined today. So I, I was at Atsilomar, and yeah. it was very interesting. And uh, I was happy to have been invited. Uh, but today, all these meetings and some of these institutes, which I think are asking the right questions, uh, run by people who are, I think, very good. Um, and get cooperation and funding from people who are also very good and who are the ones who are transforming a lot of this. I think today these people um, are almost like a self-selected group and um, I think they're ambivalent because if they talk to government or if they talk to other cultures, let's say the Chinese, then they're afraid they invite in somebody who's going to make it harder for them or um, stifle them. On the other hand, if they don't engage with the wider world, I think one or two things happen. 
In some cases, they'll get shut down by governments, ultimately, uh, if it gets too powerful. Um, or it's going to become such an arms race that, you know, the world is in trouble. So sooner or later, and I don't think they've figured it out, and I don't think they're blind either. I think they know that ultimately this has to be a bigger discussion. And I think some of the institutes that you talked about um, are very aware of it. Funnily enough, I think the governments in the West are way behind, not engaged or really willing to engage because let's be honest, in the West, it's a political, I mean, it's all about elections, all about very short-term gains. And these are long-term questions. So I'm not sure how much governments are willing, even though they should, um, engage. And I think going back to questions that are beyond what we're talking about here, the questions that I care about a lot, which is, you know, civil society in terms of the private sector and government are really at odds in the West. I think that's very, very unhealthy and very dangerous. You know, a lot of the technology programs, you know, from the Apollo program and others, where, you know, government was very involved and civil society got a lot of benefits from it. There was, there was support one for the other. There was trust from civil society towards government. Government was doing something great and major, no question. Today, civil society distrusts government, so there's very little cooperation. I think that's trouble long-term. A lot of people say, oh, well, that's better that way, that way civil society can develop the technological tools. Um, but there are some good actors, bad actors, naive actors, unless you have some cooperation uh, with government that in theory uh, has to look at the long-term um, benefit for all of society, which is difficult in the West today. Unless you have that kind of cooperation, I think the risk is too high. In the East, take China as an extreme example, and I'm not saying China is a good example for us, but you have inevitably, meaning there's no way out, you have incredible cooperation between government and the private sector. You just have it. There's no way, there's no other way. And therefore, at the end, they may, they may just be stronger than us because we're divided. And going back to the AI world, now if you ask Gary Kasparov, you know, is the greatest chess player as a human or the, great, the best machine, who's better or the machine is better? But he'll always tell you that the machine and the human together are going to be better than the machine alone. And it's a little bit the same way here in terms of society. I think government and civil society working together are going to be stronger than the two on their own. We in the West, we have the two on, on uh, the two separate. For a period of time, one is going to get ahead of the other. It'll look good in terms of private sector. Private sector in the West is ahead for sure and ahead of the Chinese, for sure. But they may catch up because of the cooperation between government and civil society. We are not able today in the West to get these two to work together. The freedom of being funded privately, enormous funding, uh, 
you know, from some of these tech companies or tech entrepreneurs, in theory, is going to be put the West at, a, at, a, at an advantage, more agile, freer. Um, but at the end of the day, um, I'm not sure, uh, because if you're at odds with civil society, I mean with society, I don't mean civil society, but when you're at odds with, with governments, I'm not sure on things that are so important that you're going to survive or win. I think there's good. there is some pure research being done, or trying to be done, but again, in the West, the temptation is that the best engineers, the best minds, go where the most money is, and there, yes, the gadgets sort of win, uh, because they're useful commercially. So are there going to be enough people willing to work on the tools of science alone? I think probably plenty, but maybe not enough. And I think in some other places in, in the world where even though China today is not very different from America, meaning in terms of, you know, it's a capitalist, it's an ultra-capitalist society, but there's still culturally this sort of dedication to a community, to the community surviving beyond individuals, mm -hmm. the, the nation, in this case, you know, the Middle Kingdom surviving, mm -hmm. and politically the party surviving. Because of all these things, you get better talent in the non-commercial sector. In the West, it's very hard. You know, technology is you know, so exciting and so transformative. And where globalization means multiculturalism and, and exchanges and competition at a totally different level than there ever was. Um, you still have to go back at the end to questions and answers that are very much about humanity and who we are as humans and where we're going as humans, sort of the questions that are ethical questions, moral questions, just very basic human questions. Uh, and pure thinking or thinking as, as a human, who are we, uh, where are we going, why are we here? All these questions that, let's say, philosophers ask. I think are important and very refreshing because it's another way of asking the same questions in a non-technical way. And if you really think of what has changed us as humans over thousands of years, it's really, in my mind, it's really ideas. It's a conception of the world. And the, the conception of the world came from different origins, but they always came from thinkers. And those may have been religious thinkers, messiahs, or they could have been just normal thinkers who then became religious, became gods of some kind. But if you really think about who we've become over the thousands of years that we know in terms of history, it always came from ideas. It always came from people. If you think of 
our world in the West, it came, frankly, from one book, the Bible, uh, you know, Old Testament, New Testament, but these are all conceptions of the world, ideas. Jesus was, in essence, a thinker who delivered a message. Others, at this, you know, interestingly, at the same time, delivered similar messages, but his got picked up and became, you know, our world, the world of individuals. Uh, at the other side of the world, people like Lao Tzu or Confucius or Buddha, uh, were now religious type figures, but they were really thinkers, uh, you know, shaped the, their world and a world that has influenced us too. And then um, thinkers, in some cases, even scientists, but at the end of the day, the implications were very often philosophical. So, you know, thinkers like Rousseau or Nietzsche, um, or Karl Marx in terms of uh, you know how society functions they have had more influence on our lives than probably anyone else so rewarding and engaging with philosophers in a broad sense philosopher in the you know in the way philosophy was thought of by the Greeks 2,000 years ago to me is very relevant especially at a time when the world is messy, uh, culturally messy, uh, messy within nations. Um, you've got sort of the world divided against itself, nations divided against themselves. Um, you have to go back to simple and fundamental questions that philosophers ask. And I think engaging that part of the world to me is valuable. And so I still think the, the world of ideas, the, the, the world uh, that is um, you know, imagined by people, which we call broadly philosophers, the world of ideas will still influence us more than anything else. Why? It's a conception of the world. If you change the mindset, you change everything. The mindset you know, that created the idea of democracy the mindset that created um, the individual versus the community, or the opposite. These are such fundamental ways of thinking of ourselves and how we function that has changed everything. And, and very sort of fundamental concepts about who we should be and who we are as humans, I think have ultimately more influence on, on us, our societies, how we live, than anything else. Um, the idea of equality is a fairly new idea. The idea of men and women being equal. Uh, the idea of potentially animals having some value. These are, these are highly conceptual. And they were created over time. Um, and they make, I think, all the difference in our lives. Uh, these are fairly fresh ideas. Uh, we don't realize them until a few generations after. And very often, and this is a challenge, I think very often great thinkers 
or the important thinkers, their ideas, good or bad ones, always good and bad, only become popular or become part of the mainstream and part of what makes our lives sometimes generations after. If you think of the most popular, I mean, well, the most influential thinkers, they were actually deeply unpopular. Uh, Socrates was poisoned, Jesus crucified, um, Confucius exiled, uh, Karl Marx same. Uh, the most influential people who changed the nature of our lives were always unpopular. But they've been, why? Because they came up with things that were deeply difficult for us to absorb because it's about change. Change is always hard. So our challenge, I think, today is but no different than 2,000 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 50 years ago, is to have the courage to provoke ourselves to come up with really different concepts. Because if we go with what we have today, we have what we have today, which by, na by nature, as humans, we have to change. To change, we need new ideas. They're going to be uncomfortable. So this is our work at the Institute. If we go to the Institute, we'll hopefully enable some new ideas that may not be popular, uh, but will be significant. Uh, a little bit like technology. In technology, you have to try. You have to go towards you know, things that it may be potentially failures, potentially you know, unpopular. Um, we have to do the same thing in the world of ideas. I think two things. I think that number one, you know, fundamental concepts, new ways of thinking are going to always, have always, and will continue to allow us to change and evolve. And they have to be deep and different ideas. Now, the world of traditional academic philosophy may not give the answers, but somebody will give the answers. Are they philosophers by uh, definition? Potentially yes, potentially no. Our philosophy prize has been awarded so far two times because it only got created two years ago, in both cases to philosophers. But I expect it in the future to be given to people who are not technically philosophers. They may be thinkers outside of philosophy basically rewarding people who have ideas, people who, who come up with, with, let's call it, transformative thinking. Because I do think it's important and relevant. And if you look back at history, the ideas that were created maybe 2,000 years ago, frankly, still shape our world entirely. I think we have been created by ideas that were created 2,000, 2,500 years, East and West, very much. And I think that the transformation that happened over the last 2,000 years were again enabled by thinkers. And they will be thinkers again. Where do they come from? Are they philosophers? Are they this or that? We can call them whatever we want, but they're going to be thinkers. And they're going to be thinkers that
exist today that we haven't heard of, or maybe some that we've heard of, whose influence will only come after a period of time. So I think we're still very dependent, meaning our human progress is very dependent on great thinkers. In terms of the winner of our prize last year, Honora O'Neill, so two things. I'm not part of the jury, so there is a jury, nine-member jury, uh, that selects uh, the winner. So they selected her. She's an interesting choice because um, her, I would say, two main areas of interest actually, in my mind, contem important contemporary questions. Not sure, I'm not saying she came up with the answers, but the questions I think are relevant. One is um, uh, ethics and technology. It's part of what we've been talking about. Um, technology has huge implications, and they're ethical. And the, and the connection between the, these two, I think, is more important today uh, with gene editing and AI becoming so powerful. So I think the fact that she's focused on that, I think, is relevant. Two, she talks about the idea of trustworthiness, also very interesting, in, the, in, in a time where trust is in question. Her point is not just, is something true or not true, but what is the origin of information? Can you trust the origin, meaning who is trustworthy, who is not? Who can you believe? Who can you not believe? Who's got an incentive or not? I mean, back to your questions, which were, you know, there's DeepMind or Google or Facebook or Baidu in China. So are they, what are their motivations? Where do they come from? They're going to create tools that are going to transform us. Can you trust them? So I think that's a very, you know, can you trust the government? Which government? Who? Did somebody who's elected in the West or did somebody who's appointed in the East? Uh, so can you trust them to be our shepherds? Because they are. Uh, they might, might be our shepherds in terms of technology. They might be our shepherds in terms of governance. Can you trust them? And I think in that sense, the choice of Honora was an interesting choice because it's very, very contemporary. What's interesting about she and interesting about China in general, is that because of the system, the political system, but also very much because of the culture, there is sort of almost sort of culturally as part of the, the, the political DNA, there is this idea that They, are, they carry history, they're part of history, and they're going to create history. And they're part of something much, much bigger and longer than just themselves or their position today. So somebody like Xi or anyone in China with real power uh, feels that they have an enormous responsibility. And the responsibility is not a temporary responsibility, and it's not about themselves alone. Even if they may have, like we all do as humans, they have an ego, 
they have ambitions, they have short-term pressures, they have their, you know, their, their creatures, you know, that react to um, desires and needs, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and pressures. But they, in China, have always been struck by the combination of a very long vision and a very practical vision at the same time. So it's not ideological, it's practical, but very long-term, which is very hard for us to understand in the West. In the West, we tend to be pretty ideological and pretty short-term, almost the opposite. So the first meeting I had with Xi, I thought was pretty interesting. He started a long expose about how China and his responsibility and the responsibility of the Chinese government and the party was really a responsibility to 5,000 years of history. So you don't ever get that in the West. Uh, so the idea that you're here to support a civilization to do, and you're part of something that's 5,000 years old, and by definition, you're a small part of that, is a very different perspective than what we have in the West. So long-term thinking, deep thinking, responsibility for the whole, making sure that the whole functions. It's almost the opposite of the West. The West, we are willing to sacrifice the majority for the minority. China's willing to sacrifice the minority for the majority. And when I say majority, the vast majority. Is it fair? Is it cruel? Is it whatever it is? But is it exactly the opposite mindset? And when you spend time with Xi, I think she is almost the, the best embodiment of this. That's maybe why he was chosen, and that's why maybe he's sort of choosing himself, clearly, to take that role. Because he, he, you can feel it when you meet with him. He, it's in him, and he feels that responsibility, which is one that Chinese society has to function. The system has to continue. He's got a responsibility towards his people in China. China has to have a place in the world again that for them is a, like a place of respect, of, of prosperity, a real place. And therefore, they have a real vision of where they should be. Um, and I think that somebody like him sort of feels that that's, that's his mission. And um, I think it's, I think it's, a, I think it's deep. I don't think it's sort of short-term politics. I don't think it's a popularity idea. It's actually sort of a sense of mission.